Welcome to the Innovative Mindset with your host, Harrison Kelly. The Innovative Mindset was created to give easy access to people with innovative stories and livelihoods that can teach valuable lessons to everybody. Thank you for tuning in to episode three with Harrison Kelly and your guest, Sam Morris. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? I'm here today with another episode of the podcast. Today, we're featuring Sam Morris of the Unbreakable Man Project. How you doing, Sam? I'm good, man. Great to be here. Happy to have you on. So to give a little bit of background, Sam works with people, particularly men that are struggling with either addiction, depression, uh, mental struggles, and, and utilizes some of the stuff that he's learned along his path to overcome those challenges and beat them himself. So Sam, if you want to just kind of walk me through uh, the struggles that you faced and what led you to eventually create the Unbreakable Man Project, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll work backwards to start. Um, it was uh, the last time I had a drink or did any drugs was November 21st of 2012. It was 4 a.m. and I was sitting at my house in, in North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, all by myself. And um, I had no clue what was coming next. I, all I knew is that I was just I was caught with this wave of fear about the next day, which was coming in four hours because I was supposed to move out of my house, but I hadn't packed up anything. I had been partying for a week. It was, it was a disaster. So on top of that fear of the next day, um, that opened up a window for me to look at the past 15 years of my life, basically. So for the previous 15 years, I had been, you know, quote unquote, running and gunning, just partying all the time. I went through a marriage. Um, multiple careers. I was a commercial real estate broker for a while. Um, I, I taught tennis lessons for a while. Um, I did copier sales. I, I just ran, I was just looking for things, looking for all these things, going through relationships um, and just creating wreckage for 15 years. And what I was really doing was I was running because I never in my life felt safe. And now to go back even further to the beginning, when I was born, um, I was born with severe asthma and severe food allergies. So from the from day one of my life, you know, uh, we don't we don't have like the external awareness as children, but we we start taking stuff in right away when we come out. And so I started taking in that that I'm unsafe, that like I'm there's a threat, I am threatened. And that was because I couldn't breathe and I couldn't and I was having allergic reactions all the time. So I had all, I was collecting all this data, all these core beliefs, the, you know, the core beliefs that we established before we're 7 years old. I was collecting all this data that I was unsafe and I needed to be saved. And so that turned into major social anxiety for me in a sense that if I'm unsafe, it means like the best place for me to ever be is at my house, you know, in my bedroom or just in the safety of my parents' care. Because without that, without that safety, you know, I was a complete mess. I would, I would huddle in the corner. I would just, I was, I was non-interactive. It was, it was, socially um antisocial like the, not antisocial in a sense of like violence but just antisocial and like i'm super scared right now don't talk to me and so i would avoid birthday parties i would avoid all these all these social situations from as far back as i can remember um five six seven years old i would tell my mom like call the parents i'm sick can't make it to the birthday party and you know part of it was true because i, I was sick but at the same time like i was i was 
manifesting that sickness in, in the form of fear. I was just scared of everything. So when I was about seven or eight years old, I, I, I was always a sports fan. So I found uh, tennis and tennis is something that provided me with an outlet. It provided me with a, a social outlet and it provided me with athletic outlet. It provided me with um, a safety net, a safety zone where I could control the environment. You know, I could stop, I could, you know, you get a lot of breaks in tennis. And um, one of the things that I dealt with that was a, one of the burdens that or the um, burden is what I felt. But one of the things that I experienced was that I was a burden to my friends. If I was playing soccer or baseball, um, anything like a team sport where I felt like if I had an asthma attack, if I'm letting the team down um, within my family, I felt kind of like a burden um, because everyone was always watching what I did. And like, if I had an asthma attack in the middle of the night, I'd be rushed to the hospital. So all this stuff now, this, these core beliefs that I had that I'm, I need to be saved that the world is unsafe, that I'm a burden. All these things manifested into this massive social anxiety that I carried with me until college. And the thing that put me over the edge is drinking. You know, when I realized that when I drank, to when I got drunk, the social anxiety was non-existent. Like I was the life of the party. I was complete opposite. I was the life of the party. I was talking to girls, making jokes, laughing with all my friends. And so I, I felt like I found my sweet spot. And so from there, for, so that was college. And so that from that age, from 18 till about 23 or 25, um, I was in college, but I was, I was still playing tennis a lot. I was on the college tennis team. So um, the tennis was way more important to me than the partying was. You know, it was nice to go out on the weekends, party with my friends, go to keg party, do whatever, fraternity parties, all that stuff. But um, I was always really diligent about going to practice, training for tennis, being, being the tennis player that I was. It was my it was my identity. It was my, it was my priority. And so after college, um, I tried to play tennis a little bit like semi-professionally. And it, it, I just realized that, you know, I, at this point I had, I was 23. It, it was just, it was too late for me. And the level of commitment that it would have taken was way too much for me. So tennis kind of fell away and that ushered in the, the full blown alcoholism. And when I say full blown, I mean that it was the, it started to creep in in a sense of, I started to, party a lot more so this void that was left by tennis because tennis was me like I was a tennis player and that was it and so then this void that was left by tennis I spilled with I'm a rock star and that was like when I say I'm a rock star like legitimately I thought in my head that I was a rock star like kid rock style like it was like legitimately this is what I was after this is my life goal was to be like this rock star because honestly it sounded cool but what really sounded cool to me was not feeling anxious not feeling depressed. You know, that's what really sounded cool to me. So I knew that if I was to go after this rock star lifestyle, you know, I could be a rock star and I could always be drunk and that, that was acceptable. But really underneath it all, this was my cover for the social anxiety. So I basically over the over college and and shortly after college through my 20s, I never really addressed the social anxiety. I just operated over it. I didn't I wasn't even really aware that it was a thing or that I had it. I just knew I knew there was a difference between a sober Sam and a drunk Sam. And, you know, all my friends did too. Like, it was obvious. Like, I was the guy that if you want to have a good time, call Sam. And so I embraced that. And so then when I turned 30, I had just gotten divorced. And I moved down to Miami. And that's when I became a commercial real estate broker. It was about 2004, 2003, 2004. And, um, you know, the lifestyle was, it was like, commercial real estate at that point was like rock star lifestyle. It was a lot of money coming in. It was a lot of networking. A lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, a lot of just like raging really in Miami. 
And so for the next three years, I just, it was a sharp dive off a cliff from a, from a slow burn to just running hot for three years. And that ended with a DUI um, in, the, in 10 a.m. in the morning after a night of partying in Coral Gables. And so that was the first like consequence, real deal consequence that I had from my drinking. And that, that prompted us a 28 day stay in rehab. Now, when I came out of this rehab, I, I felt the disconnect between drinking and my behavior. Um, I, I, and the disconnect was is that I didn't associate drinking with any of these consequences. The girlfriend getting pissed at me, my parents asking questions, my sister not talking to me. You know, I just thought that it was like a couple bad weekends. Like I was like, yeah, you know, no problem. I just need a timeout. I'll be good. And so when I came out of rehab, I, I didn't drink for about a month and I was, the social anxiety was high. Like I was super uncomfortable because I had this program that socially and drinking, the lubrication, the social lubrication of drinking was my crutch. So for, the, for those three weeks, I was super uncomfortable in social, social situations. And it started to be like, you know, if I'm going to be social, which I love to be, concerts, football games, bars, happy hours, whatever, I'm going to need to drink. So I got to figure out how I can drink normally or drink like a non-alcoholic so I can do this. That didn't work. As soon as I started drinking again after rehab, I was right back to where I was, ending up on South Beach at four in the morning at a club. I'm going AWOL on my girlfriend. I mean, it was just terrible, like alcoholic behavior, right back to where I was before rehab. That went on, that basic behavior went on for another five years. It, I was sober here, not sober there. Sober for 30 days, not sober. Sober, sober for a year, not sober. And so that morning of November 21st, all that behavior, all that running, all that social anxiety, all that, all that stuff I had talked about, it was like, it all showed up on my front door. It was like, hey, we're here now. It's time to deal with it. And I didn't have, I, and, I, and I, people ask me like, well, what made you choose to stop drinking? I'm like, I, you know, I don't know. To this day, I don't know what it was. All I know is that something happened at that moment where I said, I cannot go on like this. I can't, put, I can't continue to put my family through this. I can't continue to put myself through this. I can't continue to lose friends and girlfriends and relationships and destroy my life like this. I just knew I could not ever go backward, go back into that. And so I checked myself into a psych ward for seven days. And then I went to rehab for, <clears throat> excuse me, six weeks in Michigan. And then I went to another rehab in Utah, um, which I'd actually been to in 2007. Um, later that year from not the DUI, but later that year, I went to this rehab in Utah. And I went there because I knew that that was the solution. I knew that like that was the highest quality care I could get. And so from there, I ended up in San Francisco. And now I'm sober and I know I can't drink but I know I love to be social, go out on Saturdays and watch my Michigan Wolverines and Sundays and watch the Pats and all this stuff. Like I, I love to do this. So I just, just said, I said, I'm going to just basically learn how to live sober. And so I just did it. I, I, I said, I just basically said F you to the social anxiety and was like, you know what? Like I'd done enough work to realize that it was more of a manifestation of my own thoughts than it was a reality that like when you, when you, when you go out, on a Friday night for happy hour and you meet up with your friends and they may ask you one time, what are you drinking? Like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not drinking. Okay, cool. You know, that's the last time they're gonna ask because once they get a few drinks in them and once everyone else is there, like they don't care. People don't care if you're not drinking. I, and I make up in my head that every, that as soon as I announce that I'm not drinking, everyone's like, Oh shit, what's going on here? Like, why isn't this guy drinking weirdo? Cause that's what I thought. If I, if I, during my drinking, if I met someone that didn't drink at a bar, I'm like, well, what are you doing here? If you're not drinking, why are you here? 
You know, that was, so I was projecting all this stuff out into the world that I felt internally. And when I realized that it was all um, ideas and thoughts and feelings inside me, I was able to really shut them off and not shut them off in a sense of ignore them or push them down. It was, I was able to look at them and realize what is real versus what is just my anxiety talking. So that was a, about a year long fix of just like, basically it was, you know, I always equate it to working out. Like it's, you know, you don't walk into a gym and squat 315. You have to start at 225 or 135 and build your way up to 315. So I had to build my way up to being, now I'm able to go to concerts and now I'm able to go to football games and do all this stuff and own, own the fact that I don't drink. Cause when you come in and you're confident about it, you're just like, no, I don't drink. People like, oh, okay. But if you get like, oh, if you beat around the bush, like, ah, no, I'm trying to quit. I'm trying to take, uh, I'm taking 30 days off. People are like, oh, really? Tell me about it. And then you're screwed. Cause then you, then you really are in the conversation about why am I a weirdo? Right. So if you just come in, I realized pretty quickly that if you just come in and own it, People won't ask questions and they'll, and they'll just say, okay, cool. Good for you. Maybe someone down the road will ask like, why aren't you drinking? I'm just, and I'll tell them I'm like, it's better that I don't, <laughs> you know, like just for everybody involved. And so, you know, if you, if you, you actually have control over the interactions and the conversations around that and people just don't care that much about what you're doing, as long as you're there, so you're friends, as long as you're there. So the social anxiety, so it went in layers for me. One was the, the alcoholism and the addiction. I, I that was over. Like that was literally like from that moment at 4 a.m., it was done. Like I haven't thought about a drink since. And then the social anxiety was the next layer. And so I, I handled the social anxiety and the alcoholism. And so I thought I was in the clear. So four years into my, five years into my sobriety, I was in San Francisco, had a great job as personal trainer, super successful, living in an expensive city. I had a great truck. I had a great girlfriend. I had all these things, but internally I was a mess. Like just like I, it was, it was, you know, San Francisco was a very gray and gloomy city and that's how I felt. And I thought it was because I was in San Francisco. Like I thought the city and the weather were causing me all these problems. And so I moved to Denver because I literally one day I was driving around and I'm like, you know, like I want, I need more sun in my life. And so I Googled sunniest cities and Denver has like 320 days of sun every year, like the sunniest city in America. So I'm like, well, that's where I'm going. And I went there and the girlfriend left me and my career took a hit. Now I'm alone in this strange city and I'm depressed is what was, what, what was actually happening was I was depressed because it was, it was from, it was a story and a, and a situation from childhood that I had just never dealt with. And so I peeled out as the layers went, the, the alcoholism, social anxiety, then it's the depression was the last one. And so from that moment on, I, I kind of did it like I did with the social anxiety is like, I, I said, I'm going to look at this and I'm going to figure out why, because it, it wasn't the first time I had been depressed. It was just like, it was just that I thought when I get sober, it's going to be the cure-all, like everything's going to be okay. In reality, it was just the first layer to go. So when I finally dealt with this depression, like depression was just waiting in the wings for me to just slip up a little bit, let my guard down, stop doing the work. And so I, I looked at why I was depressed. I looked, this is probably the, it was probably the, I'd say the fourth real deep depression that I experienced in my life. Um, looking back, I can say that I was low level depressed for most of my life up until this point, just, you know, it was kind of always, I always had the tendency towards bad days. I always had the tendency to like really feel a bad day. And I thought that was normal, but in reality, it was just that depression just lingering around. So when I got down to the root of it and realized why I was depressed because of stories of, and expectations and, and resentments and, and why I felt this way and the things about me that 
the, the beliefs that I had that I wasn't enough, that I'm not enough, that I'm not equal, that I'm less than, like all these, I could go on about it. But when I got to the root of this depression, you know, it's, there was one depression I had that lasted for five years and I drank, through, I drank over it for five years. And it finally kind of like went away, kind of went away, but it was still there. This one, that, then that was kind of the cycle, three to five years of like these depressive episodes. And so this one, um, five months, I, I did the work and I got to the bottom of it. And it was five months later, I was like, cause I was expecting like three years of pain. I was like ramped up for it. And when I just actually got back to like the like learning and figuring out why it was gone in five months. And so that's what I did. That's how I became, that's how I came up with the Unbreakable Man Project was, is that I've, you know, if I can, like, that was me trial and error a little bit in the five months. I can boil this down into three months and help other guys do the same thing because so many guys suffer in silence. And I, and you, and I get messages from actually like widows all the time that are like, you know, my husband suffered for years because he never admitted that he had a problem because he never, he never he always said he was too tough or I had to be a man about it or, you know, all those stigmas that we hear. And so I just, I want to get to these guys that are suffering silently and create this space. That's part of my thing is that my, what I say is I help guys slay mental dragons without the whole world knowing, because that's what they really want. They, you know, they're, a lot of these guys are okay with like admitting that they're suffering, but they just don't want the whole world to know. Like, and so I'm creating a safe place, creating this environment where guys can come, and we can deal with it in three months and then get them back to their life without going to rehab, without dying, without drinking themselves into a stupor, without losing their wife, losing their job, all that stuff. I think it's incredibly interesting. And, and you've led quite an incredible life. But <laughs> from, having, being a man myself and knowing quite a few men, obviously, <laughs> um, it's so true. A lot of the time men choose to bottle something up because men aren't supposed to express emotion. That's a, that's a woman thing. But in a, in a lot of cases, it's, it's okay to be emotional and to convey those emotions. So I think you're doing a great thing, kind of doing it kind of behind the scenes. I think people, maybe some of these men would struggle going to an AA meeting and speaking in front of a crowd. So you're kind of providing them with an alternative, but before we get more yeah, into the unbreakable man project, sorry. Uh, I just wanted to touch with this, with the focus of the podcast being on innovation and entrepreneurialism, I just want to touch on some of the points that you brought up about addiction that really carry over well into the business world. I think it's important to kind of, and we'll get into it more with you. It's important to pull things from certain aspects of your life and apply them to others. So some of these ones I jotted down just while you were talking, uh, the fact that you were able to, to have that self-reflection and to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I need to have a change that 4 a.m. in that morning. Um, yeah. and then from there, even though you beat your addiction, not saying, okay, well I'm sober now. So problem solved. You continue to realize, okay, I have problems that I need to work through. And even though it took an extended amount of time, the fact that you're able to beat it, uh, just shows being able to dig deeper and look below that surface. You're yeah. using alcohol as a coping mechanism to avoid going beneath the surface. But once you finally alleviated that and got rid of that problem, you were able to kind of dig deeper and get to the core. Why was I an addict in the first place? So that's one of the big things that I took away just from your first, uh, your first intro. Yeah. I mean, we, we spend so much time in society and this goes through everything. Like, you know, we treat symptoms, like even with a common cold, we treat the runny nose. We don't treat the immune, we don't treat the gut health, the immune system. Like we get a cold, we, we take a lot of medicine and we wait for the headache to go away. You know, and this mental health is the same way. Like we get depressed, we treat the symptoms. 
we never we operate and that all that does is yeah it makes you feel good in the moment but you're still that underlying issue for me that all these underlying issues that's why the depression came back when i thought i was good because i was just treating symptoms you know i was treating like the unhappiness so i'll drink or you know like i'm you know, I, I, I can't get out of bed, so I'll just get out of bed or you know, I'll go work out. Like we treat, we don't ever treat the root cause. And it goes from, you know, the common cold to mental health. And until you treat the root cause, like someone that, people that get colds, you'll notice like you have friends that like some of them get colds like three times a year and some of them are like either once a year or never. And because the people that three times a year, they get a cold and they, you know, take some NyQuil and then go back to eating cheeseburgers and pizzas all the time. You know, they, the people that actually have the good immune system are the ones that have treated the gut, treat the gut well, work out, treat themselves well. Like, look at the root issues. They, they treat it on a systemic level as opposed to a symptomatic level. It's so true. It's, it's incredibly important. And I mean, whether you're an addict or not, everybody has problems that they find some sort of coping mechanism to overcome. But I think mm -hmm. the most important thing in self-growth is being able to do exactly what you just said. All right, well, why am I getting these colds all the time? What can I do to better myself so that it's a less frequent thing? So yeah, mm -hmm. incredible insight there. Uh, the second insight that I took away that I think is really worth touching on is that you weren't afraid to get help. I think a lot of the time, especially I've talked with some people in the business world that are on, um, on the older side, and a lot of the time they're like, they're closed to, I don't need your advice. This is my business. This is my life. Like I don't need other people's opinions, but more often than not, not only constructive feedback, but just being willing to, to let your guard down and have somebody else give you some input, I think is absolutely crucial, not only in the business world, but just in everyday life. We can't do everything ourselves. Yeah. You can't do everything ourselves. And what is it? The seven most deadly words in business because we've always done it this way. Like that's for life too. Like if you, if you say, well, I've always done it this way, you're going to end, always end up in the same place with business. If you, if you always do it that way, or if you don't change anything, if you don't look at anything, you know, if you want a different result, do it, do something different, take different action. And so people get stuck in like uncomfortable and familiar. Familiar is a familiar is familiar. Like people love familiar, but familiar is not always happy. Familiar is not always successful. Familiar is just comfortable. So if, if someone can say, well, I know this way is going to be somewhat effective, but I'm probably going to suffer, but there's this new way over here that promises I can, you know, it's like for my, my thing, for example, like people think like, oh, I'm going to be depressed forever. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to deal with it every day. And I'm like, no, you can fix it in three months. Like, come on. I'd rather, I'd rather suffer lightly for the rest of my life than, than, look, than have a little bit of pain of a new way. You know, so people are never open to, they're always, they always fall back into familiar. The path of least resistance is going back into what they know, what's comfortable, which is often very painful, but it's familiar. So people fall into it. It's so true. And it ties into another one of the takeaways that I wanted to touch on. A lot of the time people can be their own worst enemies. Uh, a lot of the time, <laughs> these things that you're able to overcome, the only reason that you haven't overcome them yet is because in your head, you're telling yourself that it's impossible. So it's, uh, yeah. it's so important to be able to, again, let your guard down and remember that sometimes your brain's working against you and that your conscious isn't always correct. Sometimes you need to, to overcome. Yeah. Yeah. Something you said earlier about, um, it was, uh, what was it? you said about like guys don't want to look at or be vulnerable to open up about stuff. And so the thing, the flip side of that is that if you do open it up, if you do open up and talk about it, it goes away. People don't, they never understand that if you open up and they're never willing to, they're, they're not willing to risk that little bit of vulnerability 
when it goes to like CEOs, for example, I work with a lot of CEOs. I don't want, you know, I don't want to appear like less of a leader. And, you know, it's like, well, you can either continue to go down this road where you're putting your leadership in jeopardy, or you can take a second and say, I'm struggling with this and then show your, show your team, you know, this is, I took a step back and now I'm going to take three steps forward. But people are just like, they just don't want to admit that they're wrong and they'd rather sit there and just feel that pain than just say it out loud for just one, one or two minutes. It's so true. And uh, I, I, we're going back to another, <laughs> another person that comes to my mind. It's kind of a little more old fashioned in their business yeah. ways. Uh, I, I, I made my first LinkedIn video post yesterday, which is something I've been scared to do for a long time. Um, nice. And one of the people that I had sent it over to to get feedback from said, people don't want in the business world vulnerability, like insecurities look weak, like people don't want to see mm. that. But I, I actually interviewed a public speaker on the podcast couple weeks yeah. ago and he pretty much has had tons and tons of success going and doing speaking engagements where he he literally makes fun of himself and kind of lets his guard down and he's found that it's actually the polar opposite of what that person had told me that people really resonate with that vulnerability and can relate to you because you let your guard down so it's really interesting that you would bring it up like that yeah i actually i wrote an article for thrive global this week that it was basically outing myself about having how this quarantine has messed with my mental health. You know, I call, I like to call them mental dragons and I titled the article. I was the subtitle was my dragons came out to play. And like, I basically published it and I, it was the most feedback I've ever gotten in an article. People texting me, people sending me DMS like, Oh my God, I needed to read this. Like, thank you for the vulnerability. Thank you for getting honest. Like people just gravitate towards that stuff. And like, and it shows, you know, the ability to like show your, I guess you could you could say show weakness is a huge strength, which is so counterintuitive, and especially for the older generations, they get stuck in it. You know that that's a wartime pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like it's just not a thing that was ever programmed into their heads. And so now it's the world is starting to come around to this awakening where it's like holy crap! Like if I say it out loud, for one, I feel better, and two, I'm actually helping somebody else. It's so incredibly insightful. And I mean, a big part, which we'll get into momentarily, there's one more thing I want to talk about, but it seems to me that a big part of you generating leads for this business is the fact that you're so vulnerable. Not a whole lot of people that I've come across with that have faced addictions and mental health issues and things like that are very open to, to share something like that on social media. A lot of the time, social media is, it has to be positive all the time. It has to be me doing something amazing. So you being able to yeah. show hey, I went through this long period of time where I was weak and, and let my dragons slay me. I, I was able to beat them and you can too. So it's yeah. incredibly insightful and, and very valuable. Thank you. <laughs> the last piece that I wanted to touch on is okay. the fact that it was a long-term process for you to beat these challenges. Uh, something that I think a lot of people want is quick returns. There, A lot of people, I think about it with like the stock market. A lot of people are willing to, throw money in the stock market for a little bit, but you're way better off putting money in the stock market for 10, 15 years if you want to take higher risks. So it's, it sort of goes into Rome wasn't built in a day. The fact that you were able to take it step by step over the course of years, all right, I beat the addiction, yeah. not done yet, figured out why I felt the need to be addicted, figured out that I was depressed and then were able to overcome that. It was a long-term thing, but it seems that the whole process was very healthy overall for you. Yeah. So one of the things that was always, especially in the commercial real estate business was 
one of the worst things that could ever happen to me was I hopped into a market that was like scalding hot where money was basically just throw, people were throwing around money, you know, show up at the office and you get a check. So I never, I never had to learn how to be a real estate broker. I just was basically like, here's, I have a property. Do you want it here? Buy it. You know, and then buyer, seller, whatever. And so when I got sober and when I started dealing with, and now going forward, like the best thing that I ever did was I learned how to be a beginner. I learned to allow myself to be a beginner because like you said, like people want like that. They want six, they want to be, they, they want to be like CEO like that. They want to be, they just want results like the max to be the best. Like they want everything all at once and you can have everything. You just can't have it all at once. You know, like you have to take this to every single person. I mean, you've seen the pictures of Apple in the garage in 1976 with, you know, Steve Jobs standing in front of his garage. And it's like, you know, that they were, they started, they were a beginner. Like they allowed themselves to be a beginner. Oprah, Kobe, Michael Jordan. I talk about this a lot, like watching the last dance and hearing stories about Kobe, like even after winning championships, they would go to their trainer, Tim Grover, and they would say, you know, I need to get better at this. Like basically saying, like, I need to, I need to learn how to do something new. I need to, I don't know how to do this. I need to learn how to do this. I need to get stronger. So the most, the, the fastest way to success is always to allow yourself to be a beginner. You know, saying somewhere along the line in society is, and I don't, I don't think this is only men, but we, we were taught that I don't know. It's not okay to say, I don't know. You know, like, and I've had a lot of conversations with this, but like, we're graded on, you're graded on what you don't know, basically, like with testing and all that stuff through school. Like, it's basically you're, you're graded on what you don't know. So therefore saying, I don't know means that your grade is lower. So we're, we're programmed to be, it's not okay not to know. When in reality, the best thing you can ever do is walk into a job, no matter what it is, I don't know how to do that. I don't know. I don't know the answer. Let me find out the answer. Let me be a beginner. Because until like that, and that's what I did with sobriety was like, I just need to learn the social anxiety. I need to go back to like just being a beginner about going out in public without having a drink. Like, let's just do this one step at a time. It's so true. And I think especially this is even more so my generation than an older generation. I think because of technology, people are so used to Amazon mm. Prime, two-day shipping, yeah. going on social media, you instantly can refresh your feed and have something brand new at every moment. But business mm -hmm. and, and just overcoming challenges in general, it's exactly, you got to take it step by step and, <laughs> and figure out what the right process is for you. And even as you become an expert in something, admitting that there's more that you don't know is a huge part of the battle. So I, I couldn't yeah. agree more. Yeah. Very I mean, powerful. And, and like technology and all that stuff like that does allow us to achieve things faster and get to things faster, more connection. But at the same time, like when you, you have to take the technology out of it and say like, cause it, you know, you, like I remember calculators when I was growing up, it was like, we weren't allowed to use calculators and tests because we actually had to learn how to do the math. Right. You have to like, take your business. Like you can't hand off something in your business until you know how to do it yourself because you're going to have to pass that knowledge down to somebody. So if you just, if you don't, if you farm out everything, you know, that's fine. But if you don't know how it works, there's going to be holes in it and you're going to get lost along the way. So true. So true. All right. So I do actually have one more thing that I want to touch on about this <laughs> right. portion before we dive into the business. Uh, one of the big things that I've learned in my entrepreneurial journey is how important it is that you surround yourself by the right people. Uh, was you upping and moving to new places? Uh, do you think that was beneficial for you in the sense that you were not surrounded by people that were opting to give you that call and say, Hey Sam, I'm ready to party. Or like, how do you feel that the people around you played a part in beating your challenges? 
Um, uh, you, the container matters is what I like to say. So I keep my container now squeaky clean. Um, when I was when I was drinking, I would move. I would like, you know, spend two or three years in a city and just destroy everything, destroy relationships, destroy apartments, and just say, hey, I need. To, I moved up and down the East Coast like five times in my drinking, just looking for new scenery and like a fresh start. And I was always always end up at the same place, you know, drunk, ruining the city, bad juju, bad energy, all that stuff. And so when I moved to San Francisco, that was the first time I ever lived in a place where I had never had a drink. Like I didn't have any drinking memories there. So being that I was new to sobriety, it was super helpful that it was like really legit clean slate for me. So I didn't have those easy outlets. Um, you know, for me, it's now it's like the people that I let in my life and the things that I do, the podcasts I do, the articles I write, like it has to really, really vibe with my energy. If I don't get a good vibe, a good energy from the other person, it's not going to happen because it's like, it's my mental health and my energy levels are so important to me that I can't stand anybody to, to suck energy out. And so what I found is that by setting that standard and that barrier for myself, the people with low energy to fall away. Like they, they can't keep up. They can't keep up. And you know, it, 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 not to say that I'm like super high energy vibrational creature or anything like that enlightened, but I have a certain level that I like to keep my world at and that sustains what I like to do. That sustains my purpose. It sustains my energy so that I can be the best person that I can be. And so when you talk about environment and people you surround yourself with, it's so important. If you, and people know, like if you really get down to it, when, when I cleared out all my wreckage, it became pretty clear about the people that were going to be part of my future and the people that were not because you know, you attach yourself to those low vibrations. And then when you get around them again, when you start being, when you start being better and vibrating higher, you, you get around those people and you're just like, Oh, I feel this, <laughs> you know? And so, it, it, and, they, and naturally they just fall away. You guys, you stop gravitating towards each other. Yeah, it's so true. And a lot of the time, those are the people that are going to be like, Oh, Sam, you're not fun anymore. Like you're it, <laughs> yeah. a lot of the time, if you're doing the right thing, the, the people in your life that aren't doing the right thing will try and make it sound like you're the one that's wrong. So it's, it's important to yeah, remember they'll, they'll, that not, not everything that yeah. people say is correct. Yeah. And they'll, they'll voluntarily remove themselves after a while. They'll, cause they'll just, cause basically what you're doing by being, by, you know, leveling up is forcing them to look at why they're not. And so that's very uncomfortable. So they'd rather just continue at their low vibration than actually look at why and level up with you. It's so true. So true. A lot of the time, yeah, it, it, it can't hurt to drop somebody if they're, if they're really holding you back from being a better you. So super yeah. powerful stuff. Well, this whole portion has been super interesting, but now I'd really like to delve into what's going on with the Unbreakable Man Project. So you obviously overcame your vices and, and determined that other people needed help with it. So I would love to hear some of your journey and things you've learned along the way of doing this project and, and growing it to be a functional business. Yeah, so it's been an evolution. Um, it started off as personal training. So when I moved to San Francisco, when I first got sober, um, I started to, as a personal trainer at Equinox. And then that, that I did that for two years. And then I started my own personal training business. And I did that for two, three more years. And that's when the, that's when the depression hit. And that's when I came out of that depression realizing that like, yeah, I can help guys get in shape and I can help guys eat better and, and whatever. But what really matters is like, if your mindset's not right, if your head's not right, none of that stuff's going to stick. None of it's going to be sustainable because you're always going to fall into the traps, the stories. Your stories are going to come back and haunt you all the time until you deal with those stories. So through my own journey there and through basically doing a lot of research on it and learning a lot of stuff about 
how the brain works and the core beliefs and all that stuff, I, I kind of evolved my, my practice into, um, it was general life coaching. It was just like, you know, like I can help you with your, get in shape, get a six pack all you want. But like, let's talk about like, what's keeping you from getting a six pack or what's keeping you from having a six pack and like mentally, like what's, what's holding you back. Cause if it's holding you back in the gym, it's most likely holding you back in your career in your relationships, everything. And so from there, that, that turned into, I, I, of course, cause I was, you know, in recovery, I ended up helping a lot of guys that were newly sober kind of like re redo their, like restart their life. And that means like, cause when you get sober, you have to basically learn how to like have sex again. You have to learn how to have relationships again learn how to go on dates again. You got to learn a lot of new things because drinking is so intertwined into the life. So from there, I was helping these guys in early sobriety. And I realized that like all of them had underlying depression and anxiety issues. And so then um, in 2018, my sister passed away from alcoholism. Um, and she was the silent sufferer. She was, she, you know, my alcoholism, my addiction was like over the top. Everyone knew I was, you know, DUIs. I spent seven nights in jail. I fall off balconies. I got cancer twice. Like it was, there was no secret that I was an alcoholic. For her, she struggled in silence because she was like, she just saw, she saw my alcoholism and she said, well, I don't look like that. So I'm not an alcoholic, but yet I'm still suffering a lot with depression. And so she passed away basically all of a sudden, but from a long battle with alcoholism. Sorry to hear that. So I said, I shifted then and I said, that, you know, I need to get to people before it gets to that point. Like I need to get to these guys before, if they're going down that road, let's not let it get to the point where you're losing a husband or losing a father or losing a son. Like let's, and that's where I got into this. The, so I, I, I evolved from now from the recovery coaching to just back to the, the general, like helping guys over slay these mental dragons so that they don't lose the career. They don't lose the relationship. They don't lose themselves. They don't fall off balconies and, you know, end up dead. And so um, I started the Unbreakable Man Project because when I was drunk, I would always say like, I'm invincible, I'm unbreakable. Cause I had, I had evidence. Like I fell off a balcony 35 feet and walked out of the hospital, right? Like I was like, I'm unbreakable, let's party. So I was using it in a very destructive manner. But then when I look back at my years of sobriety, like there were things, my dad passed away when I was three years sober. My sister passed away when I was six years sober. Um, I went through that deep depression. I went through a ma major heartbreak. And like, I was like, you know, there's, there's a, a will, a spirit inside that's unbreakable. You know, like coming back from all these things and not drinking through it and not completely falling off the rails. And I realized that like, if I can get every guy or these guys to tap into this unbreakable will, this unbreakable spirit. And not, I mean, I work with guys, but the, the message is, you know, unisex. <laughs> so like, it, it, I get a lot of messages from women too, that this is helpful. So it's that we all have to realize, like, we, we get so stuck in this, like, I am broken. Like, I need, I need fixing. And so we're always, like, in this. So if you say, like, I'm fixing myself, or I'm working on myself, you're inherently telling yourself on the other side of that, I'm broken. I need work. I need to be fixed. I need work. So if you live in that all the time, you're never going to really live because you're always going to be working on fixing yourself. So if you realize that you never were broken, you always have this unbreakable will, you handle things, and then you move on from them, and you keep living. It's incredibly powerful, and I think that it's it's not an easy task to overcome these things. But it's like you oh. said, it's all about that willpower and and being able to to take it step by step and and just be diligent. Don't quit on yourself. Discipline's huge. Without discipline, yeah. you have nothing. And everyone everyone hates the word discipline. It's it's like a it's it's a 
nasty word, but really what discipline is, discipline is love. Like when you're, when you're disciplined about, you know, a relationship, that relationship grows because you have discipline about not going out, like saying things in the heat of the moment or doing something combatively. Like you have discipline to, to handle yourself in situations where relationship can grow. If you're with yourself, like routines, working out, eating well, meditation, all these things, discipline, self-discipline is self-love. Discipline can always be replaced with the word love. And so people, but people see it as like accountability or like they're going to lose some sort of freedom because they're disciplined. And it's just such the opposite. It's so powerful. So you said that it's typically a three month, pro three month process for you to really help these people make these differences. If you yeah. could, obviously, uh, obviously I'm sure there's a lot more detail that we can get into today, but if you <laughs> kind of just scratch the surface a little bit on some of the core values that you really identify in those three months, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to ask, we're going to find out why we're on the phone right now or why we're talking to each other right now. Cause you know, it, it's, there's a reason that my content or whatever about me attracted you and said, Hey, I need to talk to that guy. I'm struggling. Something in my life is not going right. So we, we find out, we define the, the, the current situation and then work back and find out like, like I did, like I went back to the roots. And so I, I don't spend a lot of time in this because I don't want to spend all that time in like, I need to be fixed. Like let's, let's look like spend a, a short amount of time as possible. Minimum, minimum effective dose of time in the past. So figure out what it actually is. Why this current event, this heartbreak, this depression, this anxiety, this addiction, why is this a problem in your life right now? And not just the symptoms. Like, let's find out really where it started. Like, really where it started. And then from there, because it's one of those things that once you find out where it started, once you see the patterns, there's no going back. Like, you can try and ignore it all you want. It's, once, you, once you're aware of these patterns, you're done. You, the best thing, you, the only option you have is to handle them and move forward. So that's where the second part of the program is that we, we design the ideal life. Like we say, all right, six months from now, a year from now, what do you want your life to look like? And I'm not talking like, well, if this wasn't the case, because when I ask them that question, it's always like, well, if I wasn't this, like, no, 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 like you're not that. Like this is one year from now and you've handled this. What does your life look like? Like detach from the current situation and say, ideally, like dream lifestyle. What is part of my life? Relationships, career money, time, freedom, hobbies, whatever it looks like. And let's, let's set that target and then be fluid about getting there. And this is where the majority of the program is. So we spend the, the we, we find out what got them to talking to me and we find out where they want to be. And then the, the next, basically like it ends up being probably 10 weeks, eight to 10 weeks is course corrections. Because like you can pick, you can have a target and you can say, well, this is how I think I'm going to get there. But the, the fact that the, when you say this, is how I think I'm going to get there very rarely is that how you get there you have to be you have to be always open to changing things you know like it's and so the best thing that i always i go back to discipline and sustainability like the best diet the one that you're going to do consistently the best workout routine the one you're going to do consistently the best mindset routine the one that you're going to do consistently it's always about like making your life as consistent and sustainable as possible Amazing. I, I already got a bunch more takeaways that relate to, to any business, not just this certain situation. So yeah. the, the fact that it's important to look back and do that self-reflection that we, you, we touched on earlier, but the fact that you say, keep moving forward from that point on, don't look on the past. Think about what your goals are a year from now, two years from now. How can we set those goals? Breaking it down in 
what can we do in the next month to the next year, I think is crucial, no matter what you're doing. I feel like too many people are too concerned on, oh, what's going on Friday night, whereas they really need to be focused on, where do I want to be 10 years from now? <laughs> yeah, so if you have the discipline built in, you know, the 80-20 rule, they call it. If you, if you're good, if you have discipline 80% of the time, the 20% that people, according, they call it cheating, they call it like messing up, they call it bad, it's actually baked in. Like if you can reframe that as like, I've been, I've been disciplined for like, let's, let's take a diet, for example, like a cheat day. Like if you've been disciplined every, for six days, have a freaking cheeseburger and enjoy it. Like you, you, you plan for this. You're not being bad. People get this idea in their head that like, that's where the discipline problem comes in. Is they think they're depriving themselves of something where they're actually, by being disciplined, what you're doing is you're allowing more things to come into your life. And so I, I work with, I work with corporations too about culture. And so these guys and the, the culture is so dogmatic that they get stuck in the fact that like, you know, the, the, the people can't go to the C-level executives and they can't, they feel disconnected from each level of, of the company because the, they're so dogmatic and they see different ways, but they get shot down all the time. And the people at the top, like we talked about, we've always done it this way. So this is where we're going to do it. And so to release the brakes on like the, on the culture of the whole thing and make it open and make it vulnerable and make it so people feel that they can be themselves and thrive is huge. So huge. And I mean, the one that comes to my mind, obviously, is Blockbuster. They're the kings of, oh, we don't need to change. But, but change yeah. is crucial, whether it's on a personal level, on a business yeah. level. If you get set in your ways, I mean, look at, look at the coronavirus. If you... Literally, I, me and my friends were goofing around about the coronavirus like a week before we moved into quarantine. If, if you weren't prepared for a rainy day, it's like yeah. you're going to get rocked, whether you're Coca-Cola or you're the mom and pop shop up the road. You need to be ready for change. Yeah, that's where the discipline comes in. Like if you like people that have been the people that are thriving in this quarantine and this coronavirus situation are the ones that were already doing the work so that they didn't get thrown off. The people that were people that are like, you know, getting caught up in the wave of it are the ones that were just motoring along all warm and happy and fuzzy with no discipline, just thinking nothing's ever going to happen. You know, it's not like I think things are going to happen like quarantine. Like obviously no one saw that coming, but the fact of the matter is, is like for years I've been doing work to make my mindset strong, to make my, my physically strong, like to do all these things that I had in place. And now when it hits, it's not such a far cry from like what's normal for me. And so businesses are the same way. Like, yeah, this is different, but like restaurants, for example, like you see five-star Michelin restaurants now that are doing delivery because they were able, they, they had to shift. You know, if you, if you're not, if you, if you don't leave open the ability to shift, you're done. It's so true. you you kind of permanently, whether it be your company or just yourself, you kind of always need to be on your toes a little bit because change again yeah it's coming no matter what so whether you love yeah. it or hate it you need to be prepared <laughs> absolutely oh man so many valuable insights well uh it's been awesome one final question that i always like yeah. to ask is what's something that you know now that you're surprised you didn't realize earlier on <laughs> it's a tough a one. one yeah that's really <laughs> good um one thing that i know now um, you know, it goes back to being a beginner, man. Like being a beginner has been like the biggest lesson in my life, because if we think about it, we all, st like no one went from crawling to running those first few steps and fell down. We all took 10 steps and fell down. We don't remember that stuff. We don't remember like 
learning to type or learning to talk or learning to read. We don't, we just take all that stuff for granted. But in reality, that's how we all got to be successful adults. That's even like, even Warren Buffett, like, do you think he started off the way he is now? Like, he had to learn. He had to like grow and learn and, and go back. Always allow yourself to go back to be a beginner pretty much every day. If you see an opportunity to be a beginner, take it because that's a, that's a window for a new opportunity for you because if you're going to learn something you didn't know previous, if you, if you, if you're not willing to learn and not willing to be a beginner, you're never going to grow. You're never going to learn. And you're going to be like blockbuster where you fall off. Exactly. And yeah, whether you're, whether you're 50 years into an industry or you're a weekend into an industry, you need to go in with that mindset. I'm a beginner Absolutely. and there's things that I don't know about this that I need to learn and will continue to learn. If you have that learning mindset, you're going to do big things. And that goes back too to like keeping good people around you that are going to keep you accountable and keep you like that know things you don't or like that can that can see things that you don't like keep that container to the point where it supports you and you know you'll have a you'll have a finely finely tuned machine. <laughs> Very true. Couldn't agree more. Well, Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'd like to give you a moment to to kind of shout out anything that you're working on that you'd like to promote. Um, yeah, if you, if you guys, if there's any guys out there or any corporations out there struggling with culture, um, you can find me at themanunbreakable.com or email me info at themanunbreakable.com. I'm super active on LinkedIn. My name's Sam Morris. You can find me on there. And yeah, if you're struggling with anything that we talked about today or, or the company's struggling with culture, just feel free to reach out. I have a ton of resources, a couple of programs I can offer you. So yeah, anything you need. It's, uh, it's important to remember, you can beat this. Anybody that's listening that's going through hardship, there's people that can yeah. help you beat it, and there's certain mindsets that you can change that'll help you beat it too. So 10 out of 10 yeah. recommend, Sam. If you, if you couldn't already tell, he's clearly a pretty insightful, philosophical dude that can, uh, that can obviously help make some beautiful changes. So thanks again, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Harrison. It's great to be on. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Innovative Mindset with your host, Harrison Kelly. Please join us on your favorite podcast platform that's YouTube included for the video version of the show. So that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify as well. Don't forget to follow on Instagram and connect with Harrison on LinkedIn. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one.